Episode 75, Victoria Wick, jewelry designer and entrepreneur who's been on TV shopping channels for decades. I think it's funny you call it the favorite mistake because um, I've had a lot of them. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, you can go to markgraben.com slash mistake75. Please follow, rate, and review the podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Victoria Wick. She has sold more than 10 million pieces of jewelry over her career. Um, From 1998 to 2017, she was on HSN. She was sharing her unique jewelry designs with millions of viewers on monthly shows. And then she took some time off to plan her daughter's dream wedding. She wrote a novel, but she came back to TV. And you can find her now um, doing a weekly show on Shop HQ, sharing her elegant, afford- affordably priced jewelry. Um, so I'll tell you just a little bit more about Victoria. But first off, thank you for being here today. I'm really glad you could join us. How are you? Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be sharing this time with you and your audience. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks. For, um, um, looking forward to hearing uh, your story and having uh, a conversation about entrepreneurship and, and things that you're doing to, um, to help others. But Victoria's, uh, her family, her parents immigrated from South Korea when she was very young. She has a BS in economics from UCLA and an MBA from USC. Um, she has a podcast called Million Dollar Hobbies. So I'll encourage you to go check that out. And I think we'll be able to talk about this later. She has an upcoming book. She's written it, but not yet released. It's called Living the American Dream. And it sounds like you've uh, you've you've done that, Victoria. So I understand writing the book. That's good. Yeah, um, I, and really, it's it's not a story about me, but um, it's more about story about the journey that uh, America uh, or the promise of America. You know, if you really uh, know what you want, you're willing to go and get it. Um, there is a path to success. And it, you know, the American dream could be anything. It could be just spending time with your family or making a lot of money or doing what you do. Um, so I'm really excited to share that vision as well. And when it comes to sharing, you know, in the context of all of the success you've had, um, you know, the first question I'll, I'll throw right at you here, you know, looking back at the different things you've done, what would you say, Victoria, is your favorite mistake? Well, I think it's funny you call it the favorite mistake because um, I've had a lot of them, as you can imagine. You know, when you start a business with uh, no money, no mentors, and you don't speak English, there's a lot of things. I had some obstacles, you can say that. And um, I've gotten cheated, lied to. Um, there was just a lot of things that I should have seen it coming. Some of it was my fault, for sure. A lot of it actually was my fault. But I would say that the one that would impact the entrepreneurs today the most 
is this one. And that one, it's a big one. It's a really big one. And I'm still recovering from it. It's the one that I still haven't recovered from yet. And that is when I went to um, HSN, uh, that was back in 1998. And uh, internet uh, wasn't in, in, it was not in existence to the masses. Okay. It was sort of, as you know, in your business, the technology and all that was kind of there. The real techie people knew, knew that, you know, things like Windows and all this stuff was kind of coming, but it wasn't there yet. So my contract did not specify anything regarding internet. So uh, it basically said something to the effect, I mean, the contract was kind of lengthy, but there was one clause that said that um, they owned my image, voice, likeness, and brand um, for all electronic retailing. So the word electronic, they later then used to say that anything that uses electricity, which is everything. So, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that was, um, and what they really meant to say is that they, own, what I thought I was signing was that they owned the, you know, the likeness image and the voice and all that, and the designs, obviously, that I was offering on HSN um, for TV retelling because they had a, a very big monster of a competitor uh, named QVC, and it was worldwide, you know, they had stations worldwide. So I thought that's what I was signing, um, and I did not have a lawyer. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lawyer. And it was kind of a, a gentleman's uh, handshake. You know, the president at that time still remains a very good friend of mine. And I took his word for it. His lawyers, they had a whole floor full of lawyers. Um, and the rest of the contract was good. They've been a great partner for me all these years. But that's the one that I overlooked every time it actually, not overlooked, but I kind of tolerated it and stomached it because the rest of the parts of my contract was so good and the partnership was so good. So the impact of this whole thing is I wasn't able to build my own social media. I was not build, I was not able to kind of engage with my customers directly other than on my TV shows. So when I left in 2017, even though I have had more than 10 million, something between 10 to 15 million pieces of jewelry, which means are, you know, even if people were sort of a repeat buyers, I would say I, my transactions included uh, somewhere at least five to 10 million people. And I left the network with zero following. And I am talking zero because I was not allowed to use my own, you know, all that stuff. So they kind of managed all that. It was really nice when they did it. And I had a huge following that was attached to their page. So when I left, I had to start over. And so as you can imagine, that's a pretty um, big handicap now. If I were starting over, I mean, th thank thankfully, my brand loyalty is like completely off the chart. So my customers are actually finding me on a new network. And the new network is actually trying to really help me uh, kind of rebuild that. And I'm very uh, confident that eventually I'm going to get all 10 million people in my fold. But, you know, it's, it's time and money now. So for most entrepreneurs, I'm sure, Mark, you know, that would be the end. You know, for it would be the end, pretty close to the end, at least at least at my age. Sorry, just to clarify. So when you say zero following, you, you, people love you and your your products, but you mean you had no email list, right. no Twitter followers, no right. Facebook followers to oh, formally yeah. tap into. It was all uh, tied to their network. So even my website, if you typed in victoriawick.com, it actually opened at hsn.com, you know, as part of the pages. So 
Uh, and that kind of followed uh, when I went to Shop HQ the first uh, year when you typed in Victoria Wick, it actually went to the shopping page. And um, and I have a be- beautiful relationship with them now as well. And I think they now understand that when customers, I mean, my customers know when to tune into my show um, every month because they will Google it and all that. But when they come to my site, they want to know more about me, not just to shop again. You know, so I kind of convinced them that it would be best for my customers as well as them and myself if my customers can actually kind of engage with me on a different level than shop, 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 you know. So it's it's been a long journey, but um, I learned from that mistake and I would and the lesson I'm trying to say now and I and I say this everywhere I go, every speech I give is don't build your castle on somebody else's land. Because you might have to vacate that land, you know, that land at some point, leaving your, your beautiful castle. Well, you know, Victoria, thank you for, for sharing that story. And like you said, that element of, of that relationship that you know, with HSN that was uh, far from ideal. But now when, when you decide to get, you know, to get back into the business, you're at a point where I'm, I'm guessing you had lawyers, you worked up front to have an agreement that didn't have that same problem because you learned from it. I learned from that. And and just to clarify with um, HSN, my relationship with them for all 19 years have been, you know, mostly really, really great. Uh, uh, And that's one reason why, you know, I never really um, argue the point. I think there were many times when I could have kind of uh, separated from that, but, you know, things were going really great. And, um, I really thought I would just retire from there and for good. And I did. When I retired from HSN, um, if I, I thought at that time, if I ever had to launch again, that would be my natural home, you know, because that's where my customers are. And I still have great friends and, you know, everyone is still amazing. I have, still have an amazing relationship with them. But the type of business that they run, which is um, just a very high level, you know, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now, which is write a book. I wrote two books actually. And I, you know, starting my own podcast, getting involved in the community, getting, giving speeches. I couldn't do that with their schedule. So I kind of, uh, right now, you know, at Shop HQ, it's a little bit smaller network, a little less demanding schedule. So everything's working out great, but I would say even when you have this kind of, that's the kind of thing that could have, you know, ended up in just lawsuits forever. Um, You know, so I'm. I believe that you know you don't ever burn bridges, and and you know you don't get everything you want, but you get a lot of what you want. And I think in that, even when we ended it, that's the best I could do, really. So yeah, and I would say that you know in the entrepreneurship entrepreneurship journey, you are going to run into a lot of those mistakes that you look back and go, oh, I should have understood that. But for me, that was a big one because that is something that nobody really has an answer to, really. And I'm guessing there's a, a whole generation of, of talent from HSN that had similar deals. That I'm not sure. That, that uh, I'm not sure because most people weren't on contract. Oh, so, sorry. yeah, a lot of shows last two shows. You know, some shows last 13 minutes. I mean, uh, it's extraordinary. I can think of only like maybe 10 people in total TV history that's had 20-year career on the same network. So most people are not on contract, but if, you know, for, I mean, I, I would say, 
yeah, my guess is HSN probably had like 10, five people. I mean, it's it's been very, very rare that they actually have a contract. So my story is probably pretty rare. Of And it sounds like your, your company, your brand was really wholly integrated into HSN. Was that the only place people could buy your jewelry? No. Um, okay. they, I offered uh, an exclusive collection to HSN. Okay. So, but I had very similar type of deals with, um, you know, I sold it all over the world. I mean, I sold to duty free. I sold all the airlines. Um, if you remember when you used to fly first class, they used to have duty free carts. And so my products were, I, I mean, basically on the cover of all the make, you know, major airlines, United Airlines, um, United Delta American um, Air Mexico, you know, Canada, uh, Lufthansa. I was on probably 40 different airlines, uh, all the cruise ships. Um, and again, before the internet, all these places kind of like had, they have their own distribution. You know, I sold the hair at London, Takashimaya, Japan, um, you know, Galleries Lafayette in France. I mean, all these stores had my products and a lot of it, I actually even sold it on some different brand names. So because People, you know, like uh, stores like Neiman Marcus and Saks, they sold uh, their products with a little bit of a snob appeal. So they didn't want the same brand that was on HSN with that. So I actually created different brands. And I think that that's something I do discuss in my million dollar hobbies because it allowed me to grow pretty fast, but it also uh, kind of uh, prohibited me from building a really fantastic large brand at that time. So they would be a little different because there is a, a little less of a stigma of being on HSN or Target. You know, uh, I think today's consumers are a lot more savvy. So there is not that huge uh, psychological divide between, you know, I shop at Saks versus I shop at Target because a lot of people now will shop at both places, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For different things. Yeah. So what I hear you saying of looking back at, at the, those 20 years on HSN, you did go through some periods when you were thinking you could leave. Is it a mistake to you? And I guess you're trying to think through, would it be a mistake to leave? Is it a mistake to stay? You're weighing pros and cons. And, and what I hear you saying is that there were many, many betting benefits that outweighed, I guess it tipped it for a long time yes. in the direction of staying. And that uh, I'm so glad you uh, asked that. Yes, there were many times um, I could have left. And remember, I was under contract. So the only way I could actually leave would be if, um, well, if I, they had an out, and which was if I didn't meet my dollars per minute, if I didn't meet my minimum sales goals, they could then release me. Right? So the, I guess one way I could leave is basically underperform. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one way to do it. And uh, which was fine. Um, I always was told, I always believed that I didn't want any of my customers kind of control my destiny. So I, even though, you know, a lot of their duty-free accounts, like I was on uh, Princess Holland, America, Celebrity, you know, everything but Carnival. I was on almost every um, cruise ship as well. So there's a lot of work, but I kind of wanted to have the diversified portfolio. So I didn't have, you know, I didn't wake up one morning and said, hey, I'm out of business. So I could have left um, by underperforming. That was one way to do it. Another way to do it is have a, like a major scandal or something, which is less desirable than that. <laughs> sure. So I could have left. But the reason why I still stayed was that 
the volumes they were doing was so high compared to, you know, for the effort that I was putting in. So um, I only traveled from Los Angeles to Tampa approximately once a month. Some months I would do twice a month. And they would do, you know, these huge volumes. Before I went into HSN, I used to travel. Like, I mean, I, I remember going one time, I went from like LA to um, Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Bahrain, Bahrain to Dubai, Bahrain, Dubai to London, London to New York, and then back. So I literally went all around the world <laughs> in right. days. Um, so that was a lot of work. So when I had my kids, I really wanted to, you know, my priority became spending a lot of time with my kids. So, so by doing my, most of my volume there, I was able to get rid of a lot of those accounts that were a lot of work for what they were worth. So like I got rid of a lot of the Middle East accounts. Um, they, the higher end customers still did it by faxes and, you know, things like that. I mean, I did jewels that went to the Royal family and all that, and they kind of didn't care if I flew there or not. So I, I was able to kind of uh, become more efficient. Um, I was able to keep hang on to only those accounts that were very minimal maintenance and still, uh, so HSM was kind of like my baseline, I would say. So, but I mean, it allowed me to have a wonderful family. Um, I'm very proud to say that I was there for my children for their first soccer, you know, practice. I mean, even the little things, because it means a lot to them, you know, soccer, piano recital, uh, my kids played, uh, you know, tennis, golf, surfed, they did horseback riding. I mean, I kept them busy karate. So I was there, I would say 90% of the time I was able to schedule my, you know, you, they allowed me to black out like blackout dates. So uh, I never worked on my kid's birthday for ever. <laughs> and all the holidays, you know, I blacked out, even though Black Friday is supposed to be, you know, the biggest day of the year for shopping. And I had many opportunities to hold that, but I blocked those days out because it was really important to me. So, yeah, it's been, you know, like I said, everything else, um, everything else about my relationship with them was actually quite good. Yeah. Well, it's good to, uh, to keep in mind and to, um, to recognize that. Um, when you talk about travel, I saw a clip of you online with shop HQ. I think now during pandemic times, it yeah. seems like they have you appearing. I recognize the corner. I think your camera yeah. was turned a little bit in that clip. You're able to do it from home. Right. That's a pandemic accommodation, right? Yes. And um, they've also been very good in terms of accommodating my schedule and uh, being able to do this from home. And I love that technology where Shop HQ actually is very advanced in terms of doing remote shows. They, they were a smaller company and they've always kind of relied on these exotic uh, destinations. You know, we used to do thing, uh, do shows out of Tucson, Las Vegas. So they're very uh, advanced in that regard. So during pandemic, um, they kind of uh, walked through my home visually and I had my lighting and everything set up kind of uh, nicely. And it's been it's been very good, you know. It really come. They understood why I ended up there, and uh, my desire to do do all, all these other things. And um, it's been it's been pretty good, you know, very actually. Yeah, um, Victoria, I was curious to learn um, the the background story of your podcast title, Million Dollar Hobbies. Is is what what, what, what I, I, if I were to guess, and I should just ask instead of guessing, but I've already started my mistake. Is a million dollar hot? Is a million dollar hobby something that starts out of a passion and then grows to become a business, or or do you mean something different by that? 
Yeah. I, uh, what I did was I took my passion. I took my hobby, which is jewelry design into the million, then the 10 million, then the, you know, so I, I grew it all the way to over $500 million. If I have to guess it's somewhere between 500 to 750 million bucks. So I believe it's my philosophy. It's not, there's no right, wrong, or, you know, it's just different. But my philosophy is that if you don't um, work with your passion, in other words, if you're not passionate about, you know, even if you're selling dental equipment, if you're not passionate about that, you're less likely to stick to it. You're less likely to figure out what actually works, less likely to be the very best. So Million Dollar Hobbies is literally turning your passion into monetizing it and turning it into a business. And I believe almost every hobby you have is worth at least a million dollars. And I can, and I've done it. And when I did it, everybody told me you're crazy. Um, if you need a job, come and see me because you're a really nice girl. And, you know, I'd like to give you a break. Um, I mean, just I got everything because jewelry is the most competitive business out there. And I started it, Mark, with no money. When I say no money, and I mean, I didn't have $300 to um, make samples. So I actually, in the very beginning days, I actually sketched, I had a sketchbook and I sketched out my designs. I specced it out. Um, I went to all the department stores near me. Uh, luckily, you know, in LA, I know you're near LA. Uh, if you go down to uh, Rodeo Drive, Rodeo and Wilshire, there, I, there was Saks and Neiman's and I, I went there first and asked the department store manager if she, if she offered designs like mine, would she be able to sell it? Not only did she say yes, but they started calling their best customers because it turns out their best customers didn't really want anything that was in the case. They wanted like, the lookbook and they wanted to know what's not coming down the pipeline. And so these people, you know, I told them like, I don't have any money. I'm trying to start my business. I don't know where to start. You know, can you kind of guide me? And they saw that vulnerability. They saw how eager I was. They saw how fresh those designs were. So they actually sold first few pieces for me. It was kind of astonishing. Um, I kind of knew that I couldn't build a business, like a really long-term business based on a person or a store. So I then ended up going to, um, it used to be uh, Bullock's, Robinson's, which is now like Macy's, Bloomingdale's. But at that time, the, those stores were all around LA County. So I drove, uh, I would say like within 40 mile radius and I did the same poll with every, uh, I went to assistant department managers. They had a little bit more time and they're the ones that actually did the calling. So I got about 40, I'd say about 40 different store managers. And uh, by the time I was done with taking my poll, I came up with eight designs that I thought was very universal that, was able, that I could sell, mass. So that's how I got started. So I would say, you know, even if your passion is running, I could turn like running shoes or, you know, a t-shirt, whatever it is, you could find. I mean, I know gardeners that actually have done that, like literally just looking at gardening tools and they founded companies that are 70, $80 million later. So I do believe that you could take your hobby into a million dollars, but you got to really want it. You got to be able to kind of like be commit. You really have to commit to it. You does just happen overnight. I'm going to tell you that it's not easy, but it can be done. Well, you got the wheels spinning in my head of how to turn this podcast hobby into a million dollars. I'll uh, give that some thought. And, and we'll have a talk. 
I'll you listen know, to episodes it, of your podcast. It's funny. I ran into a guy. I gave a speech over the weekend uh, for 200 uh, small business owners. And I met a guy there. He was like part of the media. And he said, I started my podcast eight years ago and I had no idea what I was doing. I had never interviewed anybody before and I didn't even know what podcast was. I mean, he said, I just started on a whim and, but I stuck to it because I liked some of the guests I was meeting and all that. But now I forget what he told me, but he has something like either 45,000 or 450,000 downloads per week. That's either way. That's a lot. Either way. That is a lot. So um, what happened was, her, um, his, he said, you know, but I don't know how to monetize it because it just kind of grew. So what happened was he started it and, um, he, somebody kind of picked up on this podcast on episode one particular episode that he had. He said, I have to pay people I had a day job and then I have to pay people to come on my show in the beginning because people didn't know who he was, what it was. And remember it was eight years ago. So he said, I had a day job and then I would, um, pay people to come on my show. And now he said he's rejecting like two, 300 people a week, obviously, because the download like that. And he said, but yeah. I still don't know how to monetize it. And uh, because I just keep doing what I'm doing. I mean, obviously, he's got sponsors and all that, but he really doesn't know how he can impact the world now in a way that's much more targeted. So he and I are having, having a talk about that because his hobby actually is talking. So, you know, he <laughs> loves to talk. Yeah. But, but that's a great example. He said, I love to talk and I love to meet people and I love helping people. And I think I'm doing that. And I think I've done it. I started a podcast, but, but here's the thing. He's, I said, well, you have to be doing something great. How, how would you get this kind of download? He said, yeah, you know what? I didn't know how to interview people. And I had a hard time getting people on my show. And uh, my first 30, 40, 50 podcasts, they sucked. He said, I couldn't stomach my own broadcast. You know, when he was editing it, he said, like, what the heck is I doing? So he said, I have to change the game. And the way he did it is he uh, got all of the interview tapes from Oprah Winfrey, um, Walter Cronkite, uh-huh. uh, David Brinkley, all these people. And he just um, started watching their body language, their behavior. How do they pivot uh, when, a, uh, you know, somebody's like avoiding a question or rambling on? Um, so he said, I started like listening to all these people and I became a pretty good interviewer. So again, this is taking a hobby and you're committing to that. He didn't quit when nobody wanted to get on. Right. And, and then he kept on evolving. And so my whole thing is simplify, elevate, amplify, and then you can dominate. And, you know, yeah, that, that's well, what my book is about. Really. That's exactly what I did. And I think uh, there are some, a lot of case studies of uh, real people that's taken their hobby. I mean, I've got a chef who uh, started cooking because, and he, that's the great thing about him is like, he has never been to a culinary school, never worked at a restaurant, but he wanted to lose some weight and he, he couldn't stomach the diet food. And he said, like, I, I just, I, it just makes me want to puke when I just think about it. So he started cooking for himself. And then when he found one out of a hundred that actually tasted pretty good, he would record it. So eventually he wrote, he wrote the first cookbook and uh, millions and millions of cookbooks have sold. He wrote The Paleo Diet, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's uh, 12 books later and like 10,000 hours of live TV showing his books and all that. Um, he then became a model, actually, because he was trying to lose weight. And um, it's a really extraordinary story. So, you know, a lot of people like this are actually in my book. 
So I just want to help people at this point in my life. Um, money is okay and nice, but you're not going to make money writing books, obviously. <laughs> you know, it's a lot better. It's a lot easier for me to actually make money uh, being on TV, selling an art dollars more than it. Yeah. But um, I wanted to write the book to, uh, you know, because I think if you do what you love and you can make a million dollars, that is a dream, isn't it? Because you're not going to feel like you're going to be working a day in your life, really. So I'll give that some thought. And I don't have a time machine. I mean, part of me thinks, because you know, I started podcasting in 2006, you know, a couple of years in after having some experience. But see, podcasts have become, had fallen out of fashion. But, you know, maybe, you know, starting at some point, there could have been an opportunity to start a business helping other people create yeah. and produce yeah. and market podcasts. And because there, there are businesses, there are people who do that. You know what I love, though, Mark, is what I love about podcasting is I started my podcast, at, to be honest with you, I started my podcast to talk about the contents of my book, because I feel like a lot of people are not going to read the book. And sometimes when you're involved in a dialogue, uh, it's easier to listen to a real life story than read books. So I started it. But what I found was that a lot of the guests, many of them were my personal friends. I'm very blessed to have known so many of them, you know, through my TV world and everything else in a 30 year career. You know, I feel like every time I put on a guest, it's like school day. I learn. I learn so much from every guest. And I even learned so much as from um, doing my homework to put on a guest. And um, so I feel like I'm on this whole new journey of discovery and learning and then sharing that. And um, it's, you know, it's been an amazing experience and I, I'm going to stick to it because um, it's giving me, I mean, it's been, it's been an incredible rewarding experience. And, you know, I'm even just being on here, you're the first person that's actually Every show I've gone on, people have asked me about making mistakes, about failures, but your show is the only one that's been kind of dedicated to picking on a mistake and how that's been impacted, you know, how it has impacted my life and also how other people can learn from that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for being so generous and sharing your stories and, um, you know, your thoughts on entrepreneurship and, and podcasting. I, I wanted to ask you maybe one other thing. When we, we had a chance to do a pre-call, um, you mentioned a fairly recent film, Our Darkest Hour. Right. And a quote right. from Churchill. Can you share that quote with the audience and, and your thoughts about it? Yeah. So normally I don't even, um, you know, I'm a huge animal lover. I don't like, you know, watching blood and stuff, but um, everybody just got tired of watching everything. So my kids had on the darkest hour and um, it's a beautiful film. And, but the one line I remember uh, Churchill, by the way, is one of the most eloquent speakers. He, he does a lot of speeches in this event, you know, uh, arguing his point. But the one that I love is um, he says something like success is not final. Failure is not fatal. So, and it, it comes in this context where, um, I don't know if you've seen the film or not, but I have. Yeah. it's after uh, they've, they've lost, I mean, unthinkable number of men, they've completely lost this territory and they were down to the very last stand and they had zero chance of actually holding on to, you know, the cliffs of Dover. And, um, but he believed, um, you know, giving into Hitler was, was going to be uh, like a prolonged death. 
And so he comes back with this thing, you know, even though they've given up territory, even though they've lost so much men, so many men, failure is not fatal. So that didn't kill him. Um, and success is not final, meaning Hitler's success at that point was not final. He still had to keep on charging. So it's kind of odd to think of a war movie um, with um, entrepreneurship, but I do think that entrepreneurship is a journey and it's, you're fighting battles all the time. You know, you're fighting battles with your competitors, technology, uh, the environment, meaning that, I mean, the COVID uh, uh, business climate environment is something that nobody expected. It's nobody's fault. But we all have, um, and, you know, that's created battles for a lot of small businesses. So it's how you strategize, how you come out of that. Um, but I do believe, though, that with every disaster, uh, with every catastrophe, there are plenty of opportunities that come wrapped in that. So it's up to you to, to go and get it, really. Like right now, there's COVID and, you know, a lot of your bigger companies, they don't know what to do. Um, and it's larger companies, huge companies in your industry, you know, it's like taking a sharp right turn quickly on a Titanic. Well, what happens when you do that? You end up hitting an iceberg and you die. Yeah. Or the ship might so, tip over. I don't know. How, <laughs> yeah. You, you can't. So I think yeah. that smaller companies who see the same opportunity, you can, you can be a lot more agile and nimble and you can surgically strike and make make those turns and pivot, and I think that that's the lesson that you know we should all kind of uh, embrace, and you know, not all all doom and gloom at all. I mean, it sounds like there's there's two parts to the quote when you say success is not fa- uh, final. Right. Uh, let me try again. My mistake. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. You touched on the need to be resilient, to pivot, to adapt, yeah. to adjust in the face of failure or challenge. But uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on the first part of that quote. Success is not final, that we're not entitled perhaps to ongoing success. We can think of so many businesses that had so much success. Maybe the success was fatal. Yes, I I do believe that. I think that I've seen that. I see that a lot with, um, you know, businesses in general, a lot. I mean, look at IBM, you know, uh, they were sitting (laughs) You know, they had the whole world uh, in their hands. What happened? And I, it's, it's, um, I, I would say that I was actually very fortunate to have been uh, witnessed my, you know, I went to the Harvard Business School reunion. I didn't go to Harvard. My husband did. And uh, what they do is they make you go listen to um, lectures, believe it or not. I get <laughs> right. <laughs> when you go back to, for your reunion weekend, you go to classes, you know, every day. You go to like 10, 20 classes. And it's designed specifically for those people that are coming back to it on a weekend. But one of the th- classes that I uh, kind of passed by, and it just kind of looked like it was kind of boring, but I had to go look for somebody. So I kind of ended up listening to this, this lecture. And the lecture was about, they had... Um, uh, you know, top-notch people, they were alumni from Google, Apple, Facebook, um, you know, all the tech companies. So they had a panel. And the last question, so I missed a lot of the questions leading up to that, but the last question was, so what keeps you up at night? And um, every one of them said the same thing, essentially. And that is all of us. So they were, they, you know, these are like high-level people who went to the elite schools that are now working 
Facebook, Google, Apple, Facebook, YouTube. They said all of us work for uh, companies that started with less than $5,000 capital by somebody who started their business in, in their garage. And right now, as we speak, there is somebody in their garage who is going to outdo all of us. Uh, so I think that that's their fear, apparently. So I think that when you are successful, you do have to understand, you know, you have to still have that undying, un- unsatiable curiosity to keep on moving. You, ha- If you don't keep evolving and if you don't keep getting to the next plateau, I mean, you you die because somebody else is, keep, you know, keeps on going. So when you are successful, you almost have the um, the duty and the responsibility to keep innovating and elevating. And if you don't do that, then I would say not only would you not be successful forever, I would say you don't deserve it. That might be harsh, but it's true. I mean, take my business, for example. You know, this is why you see designers, like very few designers are um, relevant and, um, you know, very in demand at that same level. You know, a lot of designers are like kind of a flash in a pan. They, you know, they just come and go. I would say there are a few designers in every industry that continues to, you know, evolve. I mean, take like a brand like a Chanel. You know, Chanel, I mean, she's been dead for how many years now, but they keep evolving. I mean, they somehow find ways to modernize their designs with that same look. I mean, they, they still have that tweed and all that, but their cuts are now more modern. Mm-hmm. Their you know, fabrics are a little bit lighter. They got a little bit more edgier fringes. So they understand who their customers are and how their lives are changing. So they still continue to elevate and evolve. And I think that Success is not final. So, I mean, um, I would say in that war movie context, Hitler did succeed. And there, what Winston Churchill was saying was that he was able to count on, he was able to predict their moves because Hitler's people who were successful did the same moves every single time. Mm. So, you know. So you're talking about the need. Yeah, because imagine in... Jewelry, clothing, there are trends, fashions and styles change. And we can all think of examples in the clothing space. Um, you know, Brooks Brothers went bankrupt. They could blame COVID. Maybe that just hastened their demise. Oh, yeah, it was coming 10 years yeah. prior to that. Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at a lot of these companies, J. Cruz, another one, um, I think that they just forgot to um, evolve. I mean, they, they just didn't understand why people shop there. You know, um, you can't be everything to everybody. You have to have a niche, and that niche is going to meet somebody's needs. And, you know, J. Crew, um, in my opinion, they have the same thing in different colors, same basic tee, same basic shirt, you know, pants, like in different colors forever. And, um, you know, you can only have um, so many of the basic teas. So if you're going to have, if you're going to cater to that basic person, you still have to come up with, you know, new fabrics, new cuts, new little trims. You know, you have to experiment a little bit because you have to find, you know, in business, um, I always teach people 20% of your effort, 20% of your merchandise is going to bring you 80% of your business, right? So you identify the basic t-shirt, you know, like in menswear, you identify like a, like a men's sportswear. You're looking at basic white t-shirt. Okay. That's going to be a huge portion of your business. Fine. But then if that's all you have, 
every week, every year, they're going to eventually go to some other person's basic key. So while you still have this 20% you can count on every time, you have to understand you have to find a new 20%. So what I would suggest is that if you if you understand these six styles are your, these six styles out of the you know, 100 styles you're offering, bring you 80% of your revenue, it's great. But I would say, look, pretend you don't even have the rest. Pretend that this the six is your whole thing. So you then have to look for the twenty percent out of the out of the six, because that comes down to like, I don't know, four percent of the total. Get you know, because the rest of it are gonna come off. So you now have to look. You, you gotta be actively looking for the new thing that's gonna bring you the new eighty percent. That means you have to start to understand how to sort of like branch out and figure out, you know, experiment a little bit while you still have the security blanket. If you don't do that because that's too risky or you're too lazy or you don't, you don't even understand, you know, why you're even getting a lot of this business, uh, then you're in trouble. It's going to be a matter of when you had a business, not if. Like I said, that might sound harsh, but sometimes the best reality or the best advice is born from reality and reality can be harsh. And that's the challenge of, building and maintaining a brand and a business. So I appreciate, you know, a, a masterclass from me here today, Victoria, from, <laughs> from your experiences and, and advice for others. This is, uh, this has really been great. I didn't mean to be harsh, but it is, it is, it is the reality. Okay. The reality I, is uh, uh, not kind sometimes, you know, and I say that with love and grace uh, because I've been through that. I have been through many times where I've had to reset. I mean, I've had to intentionally like downsize my business at times to make sure that I readjust, um, you know, because the last thing you want to do is keep on risking everything you have, you know, so I've had to cut out customers. I've had to cut out things that, that I didn't want to um, because you do need to sometimes it's like getting a tune up, you know, in a car. Well, I, I think, yeah. So um you, you described your, your words as harsh, and I think you were, you, were, you were being a little too harsh on yourself. Like you said, it came through with love and grace. You're trying to help others. As, you, um, as you've said, your goal is to create um, a million millionaires, and um, you know, I really admire and appreciate what you're doing. I look forward to uh, your book coming out. Um, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of great lessons there. That book is um, called Living the American Dream. And what I can check out right away, and I'll encourage others to do, is check out uh, the podcast, and that is, again, called Million Dollar Hobbies. So uh, our, our guest today has been Victoria Wick. You can find her website that's about her, and it points to, to her and her story and everything she's doing now. Um, she's built this new castle on, on your own internet land, right? It's uh, Victoria oh Wick. <laughs> VictoriaWick.com. I'll make sure there's a, a link in the show notes. It's W-I-E-C-K, VictoriaWick.com. Um, Victoria, thank you so much for being a guest here today. I'll, I'll give you the last word if you want to take it. Yeah, I forgot to mention that I'm holding a uh, free webinar, completely free of charge uh, webinar. And it is, um, I think it's titled, um, how, to, how to Become Relevant and then elevate and amplify your personal message so that you can build a brand. And uh, it's free. And uh, like I said, in my journey to my new mission, my new chapter of my life is to create a million millionaires, is to help small business people get visible, 
get their voices because that's one of the fastest way to go out of business is that you got this amazing, fabulous product or service and nobody knows who you are. So that, you know, I can teach you how to get some free PR and uh, there are a lot of free PR stuff that you don't have to pay a PR agency for and um, to amplify your voice and, and simplify. So hopefully uh, many of you will check that out. And, um, and I thank you, Mark, for having this wonderful show and, um, and inviting me on your show. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll make sure there's a registration link in the show notes. What's the date on the webinar? I think it's June 23rd. Um, and it will be limited. It will be limited in, um, you know, we don't want to have 4,000 people checking in on it because we wanted to have a great, um, so if it gets completely sold out, I'll hold a second one. So it will, it will have a, a limitation in terms of technology, as well as how many question and answers I could actually answer. But it, it will be, you know, I don't want to ever um, tell you um, what to do and then not teach you how to do it. So uh, this will be uh, a real good primer on, um, you know, if they want to go buy services somewhere else and they can do that afterwards, but uh, my thing is going to be free. Okay. Well, good. Well, thank you for telling us about that, Victoria. Thank you again for all the sharing that you did here on My Favorite Mistake. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Victoria Wick for show notes and links to her webinar and all sorts of other information. You can go to markgraben.com slash mistake 75. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, and how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. Since every podcast asks you to do it, it would be a mistake if I didn't ask you to please follow, rate, and review. But most importantly, thank you. Thank you for listening.